Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, Episode 6, Ghostbusters, 1984. Super 70 is a podcast meant to sync to play along with the film we discuss. You don't have to, though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can download the commentary on iTunes, SoundCloud, or my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I will be using the 2004 20th anniversary of Ghostbusters 1984, which will be the same timing as all other subsequent releases, except on Blu-ray, which will require a pause of about three seconds. It is also available on Amazon Prime for a fee. That one should sync well with the DVD. If you press play on the DVD and Amazon Prime now, and Blu-ray about now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. FBI warning for the DVD. Before we begin, we're going to do something a little unorthodox. Instead of encapsulating just what I think off of mountains of material I've read over 20 years, I'm going to paraphrase and directly cite one source for pretty much the entire podcast, and that would be Adam Bertacci's outstanding internet essay, Overthinking Ghostbusters, which you can find at runlayarun.com. Yes, you spell it like it sounds. We'll get back to Bertacci later on. This opening shot, the tilt of the sky forming two triangles and the landmark of the New York Public Library craning down to the lion, which will stand in for Zozer later. Very important shot. Obviously, the camera tilts down, but if you saw that unbalanced diagonal format, this line between the New York Public Library and the blue sky. The tip of the roof just barely touches the edge of the frame. It divides the sky into two triangles. You got this eerie music. The camera drifts downwards. The sky is then cut off. And there's this negative space in the composition. And then you've got these spooked pigeons that fly off. All of that sets the tone effectively for a horror film, but you know that you're not watching a horror film. You've already got a lot going on here, right? The, the lion is the first of many statues. There's idols in this film all over the place. There's architectural touches that come up throughout the film. Architecture plays a major role in Ghostbusters, in the design, in the plot. And that first image shows us pretty much everything that we need to know. And all of this, of course, leads to the Ivo Shandor building. The logo is going to close down around the ghost, and it's going to wipe us to the next scene. The title in the transition will mark a formal self-admission as fiction here. You don't actually get to see the ghost. You actually don't have any other credits other than 
the title. So there's no directed by Ivan Reitman. There's no starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, or Harold Ramis. The only thing that separates us from the story is the logo itself, or even the Columbia logo at the beginning. Now, the star is an amusing visual pun because Bill Murray is the star here. Uh, He's kept a little in the dark. The other two are more lit than him. He's always in a sort of murky brown, and he's around a mess of equipment. Or there's food everywhere, takeout food. And the script makes a lot of the cards. These are Zener cards. And Jennifer guesses, is it a star for her card right after right after Venkman shows her one, right? So she's guessing. She's picking up on his cues, and she's even complicit in the shocking of her schoolmate here. Now, Venkman draws a circle for Jennifer. And, of course, we're supposed to infer lots of things about sex and gender from the circle. Notice there's a half circle behind her schoolmate here. Now, there's also a figure eight reference, which Venkman validates, but it's not just wrong. There is, in fact, no figure eight in the entire Zener card deck, and they would have eventually gotten through that 75 card deck, and they would have found out hey, there's no figure eight. Notice the ESP sign on the left, but he couldn't divine the fact that this was going to happen. And you can keep your 12 bucks, mister. What kind of a lab is this that has a picture of Marilyn Monroe on the wall? Now, this shot here is what we call a two shot. There's two people in the frame looking at each other. And Reitman's going to repeat that for many times throughout the film with many people, with many actors. And sometimes he will almost get the two shot and then pull back. And he'll do that with Sigourney Weaver. He won't complete the two shot until he feels that the two characters absolutely belong in the composition. And that's to keep us on edge of whether or not characters belong together. And there are characters that belong together in Ghostbusters, and there are characters that do not. Now, Stance is obviously a man of action. Notice that he entered, he crossed from left to right. And then he goes into the murky background to mess with the tools in the trade. And Venkman, unfortunately, has to abandon this encounter with Jennifer. 
Here's the two shot again. Usually it's going to be used for romance, although here it's basically for his desire. Spangler's first shot renders him barely noticeable. He's down in the frame when they're walking in. He's all business. He's the only one in a three-piece. Venkman's tie is a little bit more of a joke. It goes back to what Dana calls him later, a game show host. Venkman doesn't even say Dr. Spangler after he introduces Ray as Dr. Stance. He just says, Egon. Alice is laying down. She's in a weak position looking up. But all of the men are eye level. And we're going to go back down into the basement. And while they do that, I'm going to go through a little bit about where I got all this stuff, which is from, again, what I had said before, Adam Bertacci's Overthinking Ghostbusters essay, which is at runlayerun.com. Bertacci is an author. He graduated from Northwestern's film program and has a minor in English. He cashed both of these in at the same time when he wrote Two Gentlemen of Lebowski, a most excellent comedy and tragic romance, which is effectively the screenplay for The Big Lebowski, written in Shakespearean verse. This did have a life as a play. Bertacci is also a filmmaker. He's produced shorts and many low-budget films that you can find links to on his website. Most notably, however, he is a capable writer who has written for Entertainment Weekly, Cinematical, E! Online, as well as published dailies like U.S. Today, USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and The Chicago Sun-Times. The Tower of the Books was improvised by Reitman on the way to the set that morning. And that's a joke on the architecture of the film, the skyscrapers. The falling bookshelf is going to expose a white wall. and It's going to deflate the sense of enclosure and entrapment that the opening creates. It's to make you feel safer. They're very tight here. They're in a very enclosed area here. When a bookcase comes down, it's meant to be a little bit of a, a scare, but when it opens the space up, it's meant to be a little bit of a relief to the viewer. This is quite possibly Bill Murray's best movie. He spent the previous few months in Europe filming a remake of W. Somerset Maugham's book, The Razor's Edge, in which he played Larry. He didn't have much prep time for Ghostbusters. He arrived shortly before shooting was rather worn out by the end. On the disc commentary, Reitman says that there was a punchline rule 
that everyone had to abide by. If you thought up the line, then you couldn't use it. It had to go somebody else. And this is why Murray has all the lines in the film. Aykroyd and Ramis thought up these fantastic lines, and Murray used them all. They were the writers, of course. He was too exhausted to be spontaneous. The reveal of the library ghost is calculated to chill. Reitman widens out. He shows some of the clean floor in front of the character. The whole space seems to expand. Again, it's supposed to give you a little room to breathe. Now, Reitman doesn't show the specter too much or too often. In fact, all of the ghosts and Ghostbusters are on screen for mere seconds. And there's a little bit of the Jaws effect. Don't show too much. There's a practicality effect, right? It costs money to do something this, this complex. And really, that looks pretty good for 1984, I must say. For overprojection. When the ghost freaks out, the camera's going to slip down and under, so it's going to submit to her. It's going to be very quick. And the monster's outburst is going to sound more like a man, and that's supposed to get us in on the joke here. Of it's, it's not real. It's just, it's just a joke. More pigeons flying away. So here's the payoff that it's comedy. As with Alice, a spectral encounter, it's the lead-up that makes Ghostbusters horror and the payoff that makes it comedy. Even the use of music is similar. It relieves the tension and ushers in the gag. So when they free the library when the pigeons scatter, it's just like the first shot. Notice the number on the door. It's painted with a stencil like it's a prison number. And this may be how Venkman views this room. It's a prison to him, even though Ray is going to go on later about how working at the university is nice. They gave us money. And he's going to say things like, you've never worked in the private sector. They expect results. You notice that they entered not through the glass window door, which bears their names, but that plain functional door. It's also a bit brighter in there. The mystery has sort of been sucked out of the lab. Their equipment's been cleared away. A lot of the mess is gone. Now, Venkman here is... Here's the 
a brief two shot and then it's broke up and Venkman's going to be lounging effectively. He's dominant, but he's lazy and he goes with the flow. He's drinking on campus. And here comes the the two shot when Venkman comes up with this sudden idea to go into business for ourselves with the peach schnapps. And this is when they join the private sector. Curiously, they're right across the street from the New York Public Library. And the bank. Citibank, that is also right across the street. The camera's a little bit lower here. But as you go through the movie, you're going to find that the camera's going to inch up higher and higher. And here's where Venkman says the franchise rights alone are going to make us millions beyond our wildest dreams. And those two scenes together, when Venkman says to go into business for ourselves, you notice Venkman's outfit now. He's wearing the, the dark suit with the red tie. Spangler's still wearing the same thing. Stance is the boy here, but this is where it really pushes this this view of Ghostbusters that it's a it's a capitalist movie, that's an entrepreneurial movie, that it's a pro business movie in the middle of the Reagan eighties. Notice the color palette is not too different from the lab. There's browns, dark reds. We've got a warm yellow. The transition into Dana's storyline is a major term for the film. We've got to introduce a new character. It's the first time we've left Venkman and, his, and the, the group. And that was over a reel that we were with them. And we go in with grand style. We go into Central Park West. These doors that look like they're 70 years old. And there are doors all over Ghostbusters. And, you know, the meanings of them all, like here's Rick Moranis playing the key master. The key master locks himself out of his own room. I mean, not once, but twice, which is a great gag, but it's, it's a gag that he is the key master, right? She is the gatekeeper. Of course, she's the female. She's going to be the gatekeeper because she has the vagina. The male's going to be the key master because he has the penis, that's just how that works. Now, I don't think that they are going to consummate until after Gozer walks through the doors. Again, doors. So Lewis's door, Dana's door, which you're going to see, she's going to open it twice when she lets Vakeman in, when she turns into Zool. The firehouse door. 
And of course, the huge doors that's on top of Spook Central, which is this building. Here's the famous commercial, We're Ready to Believe You. Because that's what smart businessmen do. They, they buy TV adverts. So we've been with Dana for a little over a minute, and what do we know about her? Well, she's looks to be pretty witty. She looks to be hardworking. She's tired after coming back from work. We know that she lied to Lewis because she has her instrument with her, and she says she, she can't be with him because of practice. Here's the Stay Puffed Marshmallows. You'll find that this film is loaded with junk food. There's food all over the place, but there's junk food all over the place. Venkman even mentions it, but then you see Venkman eats junk food too all the time. Of course, if you're ghost busting all the time, you just have to pull over and you get whatever you can. Now, she must come for money because this apartment is way too big for someone who effectively is a full-time cellist. Zool. The door to the spirit world. It's an imaginary door. Kind of like C.S. Lewis's wardrobe. That extreme shot... of Zool as a dog that was supposed to heighten the emotion you get a vast landscape and then a close up on a terror dog and then when she slams the door shut the next time you see her is when she opens the door to the Ghostbusters building now Annie Potts who plays Janine Melnitz it's a it's a bit of a strange role for her because Annie Potts, obviously, if you've seen her in anything designing women or whatever you're watching, she's a very feminine person, I would say, and they did everything to scale that back. See, Egon coming up from the desk here, very very um, suggestive, I would I would add, with the eye contact that she gives him there. But they've, they've cropped her hair, they've given her these huge glasses, and they're, I wouldn't say they're trying to make a tomboy out of her, but they're, they're clearly trying to define the competition. And she's about as far away from Dana Barrett as you can get. See the Coke on the toolbox on the left? I don't know how you work with a cigarette in your eye like that. So the camera's going to linger on Dana. And we're going to be just as interested in her as Stance is. Watch Venkman pop up here like a Warner Brother character and then leap over the 
the gate. That's right out of the Marx Brothers. And then we have the two shot. And he's going to be on the right of the frame rather than, for example, shooting from, say, Janine's perspective. And it's going to wait towards him. And by now, you might be invited to scoff at the amount of detail that we're reading into things, and we'll try to tone it down a bit, but not too much. It's, it's important to go through those early scenes with a fine-tooth comb and find out you know, what exactly is going on. And by the way, this is not even a tenth of what Bertacci writes in his, in his essay. This is just notes. Now, this examination repeats the Alice scenario, only instead of laying down, obviously Dana's sitting up. And the three men are clustered around her, and they're not exactly sure how to help her, just like the Alice situation. Now, Reitman doesn't play with the framing or the composition as much this time around, but it's worth noting that you know, he blocks his actors in very interesting ways. He puts these two guys in the two shot. And then he runs Dana out of the frame, denying the two shot to Dana and Peter. What's going on here, scene by scene and shot by shot in each scene is uh, a domino effect. Basically you have an enormous ending with terror dogs and huge doors that go into a parallel dimension and a demi-god from Samaria coming out that looks like a Slovakian model. Venkman with his uh, penis out here waving it around. You notice that she backs up from it every time he whips it around to her. So in order to get to that point, in order for you to, to get Spook Central, to, under, to, to get you to believe that, that ending, which is rather fanciful, Reitman and let's not forget the screenwriters here, Dan Aykroyd and, and Harold Ramis, are taking you just step by step through a series of unbelieving situations. First, they're going to show you the ghost. Everybody's seen a ghost, so that effectively that's negating. That means nothing. And then we have a sort of, uh, of, of an investigation, kind of like The Exorcist, where something's wrong with the little girl, and we don't know what it is, but we're going to go to the people who say that they understand these things. And as it happens, those people are wrong. And the Ghostbusters are wrong, too. They, they do a little bit of research at the, at the New York Public Library, and really that's about it. They they can't figure out what's going on with the, with the eggs and the refrigerator full of terror dogs. The next step, obviously, is, is we're going to see Slimer in the hotel, and that's going to be a, a rather protracted scene to set up effectively what the Ghostbusters do for a living. We won't see anything that protracted again until the finale in the third act. So the first act, big set is the library. Second act... Big set is Slimer in the Sedgwick Hotel. Third act, Spook Central in the battle over Gozer. So 
how do you get from one to the other with an audience that that knows that this is a comedy and even though it's got a horror bent to it, how do you sell to that audience that this is a horror comedy? This is nowhere near horror. There's nothing in this that's that's scary. Except for that fridge full of junk food. Venkman is hears when he says he's going to go for broke. He sits down on the pink couch. And he lets Dana effectively dominate him. This is where they dance around the two shot. And Reitman keeps moving the camera basically at a 45 degree angle angle to, to get away from the two shot. So Dana's going to escape it every time. Bill Murray is a tall man over six feet. And if you look at he and Sigourney Weaver standing close together, you get a sense of how tall she is. I don't know her height, but I remember an alien. She was seemed to be pretty tall to me and she wasn't wearing any heels. So why do we like Ghostbusters? And I have a theory. I think we like it because this domino situation works. Of the one act, two act, three act, and you step up and you step up and you step up and you're sold on the whole Stay Puft Marshmallow Zozer idea. I think it works rather well. I think it's why it's one of the best movies ever made. And if you th- think of it, if you think of it like that of Ghostbusters 1984 is one of the best movies ever made, why is it that this film doesn't have an Oscar or that Ivan Reitman doesn't have an Oscar or Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis don't have Oscars? And really it's because it's not a film that gets Oscars. And that goes back to the bias about comedies. Comedies get no respect. Everybody thinks that comedies are easy. But in fact, you know, sometimes comedy is harder to pull off than drama for for actors, for directors to sync things, to get things right. It's easy to act like a dumbass, but to do that 30 takes in a row to, to get the one that the director wants to to represent what he wants on the script. Now, notice there was no montage here. They cranked up the music, which is cleaning up the town. They got out of the firehouse, and then boom, they're at the Sedgwick Hotel. And this is the Ambassador Hotel on the inside, by the way, in Los Angeles. So they they shot all interior scenes in Los Angeles, all exterior scenes in, in New York. And here you see Venkman's looking at this woman in the, in the, the mink collar. They're in... The coveralls, the hotel concierge is in a tuxedo for the hotel manager. See, they got their name tags. See, these are blue-collar workers. 
These are guys who took a large loan out from the bank. They're staking it all on the line. They've invested in the technology that they've developed themselves. They set up a business to serve. They've put their suits away, and they've pulled on the working man's clothes to go and get this job done so that they can make a living. And at its heart, really, I mean, that's what Ghostbusters is about. You can't sell me that it's about Peter and Dana. That's, that's not going to sell me. So here's another visual joke here. No smoking, but each of us has an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back. You know, this is great stuff. This is a great comedy. This this movie has endured, and it'll never be recognized by anyone who hands out awards because that's not what people who put an award show together do. This was a $30 million comedy in 1984, so to put this together, Star Wars was $11 million in 1977, and The Empire Strikes Back was $18 million. Comedies were never $10 million, much less $30 million. So Ghostbusters brought in, hold your breath, $229 million. And re-releases brought this up to $242 million. So that's a payoff of seven times. So comedy can be art and because Ghostbusters is art. It proves that it's art. And... That's what overthinking Ghostbusters is all about, right? Now, these awards, that's, that's an ongoing argument. Most comedies are, are really ignored. But Adam Batarchi did manage to successfully campaign to get Ghostbusters entered into the National Film Registry as a culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant film of American history. So you just remember that when you see Rick Moranis with a colander on his head. Some of my favorite shots there of Dan Aykroyd with a cigarette hanging from his lips. But you did notice that there was no montage when they got into the uh, the hotel, right? There was there was no uh, we're suiting up, we're putting the proton packs on. We didn't get any close up shots of Ecto One. Uh, we didn't get uh, shots of their their patches as they were walking from Ecto One into the the hotel. You, you got none of that like you would do now. Nope, it's we got to go. We're going. We're there. They are on the 12th floor, and why are they on the 12th floor? Because hotels don't have a 13th floor, right? The Stance Slimer confrontation is shot pretty much without fanfare and designed to introduce Slimer more than anything. And when Slimer confronts 
Venkman, it's kind of like an Old West standoffs when they're staring each other down. And that dead center framing is kind of a... Bertacci calls it an odd precursor to Wes Anderson's films. And you notice there's not a whole lot of close-ups in Ghostbusters. With the group of characters that you have, it may not be necessary. Here's one just to get the goggles in. So here's the barroom brawl. What makes this mayhem work is the fun of the scene and the characters all figuring out how to use their instruments and how to execute a game plan. So this sets up the rules of the future. Don't cross the streams. What do you mean bad, right? You're going to see that later again in the finale. And that's the one-two punch. And this goes back to something that we had when I was a school teacher, right? You tell your students what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. Then you tell them what you told them. And then you tell them again. And that's how you get it across to your audience so they don't miss anything. There's a huge difference between doing that and, say, insulting your audience, which some people, such as myself or even Roger Ebert, they detest filmmakers who insult their audience. When you take your audience for granted or you treat your audience like idiots, there's a big difference between informing your audience what is going to happen cinematically and then treating them like idiots. Here's a strange two shot turned into a triangle. And then you're going to see another pair of double doors open, just like the elevator doors, just like Gozer's doors. And then Slimer's going to go away forever. Notice the inverted triangle that he disappeared into. Now, Aykroyd is the uh, dreamer. Ramus is the designer. You can easily say that Ramus's job was to tame Aykroyd's wilder impulses. Since he is... He's the one who is more interested in the paranormal. 
Bill Murray was the only one here who really could have delivered that line. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. So here's another reason why I detest television. This shot here, if you notice on the left-hand side, Ramus is going to put up some fingers, which is going to indicate to Murray uh, what to use in terms of prices for the bill. $1,000, $4,000, it's going to be $5,000. I had no idea it'll be so much I can't pay it. Now, when I saw this on TV, I don't know if that was cropped out completely on the left, but all you saw was Bill Murray. You didn't see Harold Ramis at all. And even if I had seen his fingers, it would not occur to me what he was doing on the left. So that was not something that I was even aware of until I, I saw this on this DVD when I purchased it in 2004, because I had never seen Ghostbusters in a widescreen format before. Now this montage gets us into the legitimacy of the business and what the business is doing and the business is growing. USA Today, the New York Post, the 59 Cadillac funeral car running around town, Time Magazine, Larry King, which I think this is his first cameo performance, describing the supernatural success story. Here is a nod to Rockefeller Center to let you know, yes, we are definitely in New York City. The Atlantic, which is a, well, I will just say that that is a political forum. I won't get controversial yet. It's the largest kitchen in New York City I think I've ever seen. Not that I've seen a lot. Seems large for me. No job is too big. No fee is too big. And that's Vankman being the salesperson. This is a joke my kid loved. How is Elvis and have you seen him lately? So that montage takes full advantage of popular tropes. It incorporates real-life news figures. It grounds the story to reality using the real newspapers. And it conveys this support for the Ghostbusters. Hard to believe this is a PG movie, huh? Uh, a popular support for the Ghostbusters that you that you need in order to to understand in the third act that the Ghostbusters represent the people. The other thing that the Ghostbusters represent is they are an equal opportunity employer. And here, Winston Zeddemore shows up to become the fourth Ghostbuster. And you notice that when they look at him, they don't even look at him twice, right? They say, you want a job? You're hired. Looks at his resume. No, he doesn't look at his resume. 
He just hires them on the spot. So it is very obvious from the get-go, they don't care what color Winston Zetamore is. All they care about is he wants to work and we need work. So there is a, in the midst of this capitalist message, we do have a a rather egalitarian message going on at the same time. Now, this scene here always kind of confused me, but it's it's done very brilliantly. The, Bill Murray is the star, but when we cut to their meeting, they don't cut to Bill Murray waiting in the plaza. I think this is the Lincoln Center for her. They cut to Dana coming out with her semi-boyfriend, the stiff, whose name escapes me, but I believe he was in Pink Cadillac with Clint Eastwood. They're in this circle. So we know that we're in Dana's world here, right? The circle being representative of the woman. So he's not really going to run this conversation or win it, but he stands out like a sore thumb. He's in this orange jacket. He's acting like an idiot. He opens When you open the shot and you're introduced to him, he's hopping on one leg like Chuck Berry. And then when they close the shot, he's circling like a mime. And, and they're both kind of mimicking the, the huge circle. And that's his way of saying that he's into her. Sigourney Weaver just has a beautiful smile, doesn't she? Frank Price was the producer at Columbia who greenlit this. And seemingly the reason it was greenlit was because they had a hole in the summer in about a year that they had to fill and they didn't have a movie for it. So he told Ivan Reitman, if you can get this done and released in one year, you can do it. It's, it's yours. The money's yours. And if you think about what they had to do in order to get a film of this scope and magnitude shot with ADR, everything in post-production, special effects by ILM, wrapped into a little bow and on the screen in a year for distribution, that's, that's pretty outstanding. Not bad for $31 million. Now, here you've got wide and medium shots. Wide, medium, wide. And you're in this tight spot. Now, here's the two shot with Peter and Janine. So they're, they're finally getting along. You know that because the two shot is there. And then we have our introduction to Walter Peck. And this is where we have more politics in the film. Ronald Reagan, by the way, he liked this movie. Uh, He was entranced with it, is what some people said. Apparently, he watched it in Camp David in the summer of 1984. 
He said, quote, it was better than the movies when I was making them, unquote. So the film is definitely a fan of the free market, for sure. And there are some things going on with big government and small government and the entire theory behind those two contrary ideas, I guess I should say. And then you have the the position of Walter Peck. And the, the concepts get pretty murky here. Ghostbusters is, is not an anti-government movie per se. Walter Peck represents the worst of American big government. He doesn't represent everything that's uh, evil ab- ab- about government, like as if government were 100% an evil thing. He just represents everything that's evil in that that government. So it's not an anti-government movie. In fact, like when you when you see the end of the film in the third act, you're going to see national guardsmen running around. You're going to see municipal police. You're going to see a very effective argument in the mayor's office in which the the mayor sides with the Ghostbusters. And all of that is going to be very pro-government. But it's, it's the little pencil neck bureaucratic dweebs, for lack of a better description, the Adolf Eichmanns of the world who are running shit in the bureaucracy that are screwing things up for the everyday Joes who are just trying to get by. The Twinkie metaphor, my God. I don't even know how to put this together. I'm just going to quote directly from Bertacci. The Twinkie scene, for it must surely be named, both discusses and represents convergence. It's the first time all four Ghostbusters are assembled in one place. A fourfold cross-rip indeed. And here Spangler speaks on the escalating psychokinetic energy in the region. Plots are escalating too. Clearly there's a push-pull of Cold War tensions in the world. As one side stockpiles more firepower, the other responds. It's all laid out in a metaphor perfectly emblematic of Ghostbusters. The comic collusion of the fantastic and the mundane. That's a big Twinkie indeed. There's actually a fair amount of snack food strewn about the film, from Chinese takeout to Cheez-Its and Hi-Ho's to Wise potato chips, and lest we forget, Stay Puffed Marshmallows. Perhaps a comment on, or testament to, our consumer culture. Perhaps Spangler might have chosen his words more carefully had he known that someone with an earshot would literally reimagine the mounting psychokinetic energy as an overgrown taste treat. And you notice when he says, what about the Twinkie, there's a sign over Venkman's shoulder that says danger. So here we have doors opening again. And the song that's playing is Hot Night. Because it's going to be a hot night tonight for sure. (laughs) 
Dana's apartment is more than just a, a representation of perhaps her wealth and privilege. Notice the windows kind of look like bars there. But it's it's meant to look very feminine. And there's a lot of pink, lots of light reds and so forth. And when she starts to strip, it's almost like she's mocking the gratuitous nudity of a lot of other horror films because she doesn't go all the way, including her own strip scene at the end of Alien, which I'm sure was on a lot of people's minds when they went to go see this movie and saw her start to take off her pants. So the fact that it stops, it's more than just a tease. It's also a bit of a joke. But you would have had to been a fan of horror films in order to get that joke. Now, the terror dog tack itself seems horrifying. I mean, she's horrified. And this is a horrifying thing to have happen to anybody. But the way that it's done with these legs popping out and covering her like in between her leg and then over to the side, and there's one like right on top of her chest, you know, it's, it's meant to be performed in a comic way. That is a balancing act. You know, you're abducting this woman and sliding her into the into the other room. But even as the carpet bunches up on the floor, like, why would you take the time to show that? If this were a horror film, you wouldn't. But because it's a comedy film, you would. Back to uh, Lewis's apartment. Debbie Gibson is in this scene, by the way. I was watching Cheers with my son on Netflix a couple of weeks ago, and that blonde was in one of the episodes played Dan Hadea's wife, took me for the loop. Notice Bill Gates just walked in the door here. I'm guessing that was Melinda with him. Everyone's got glasses on. Have you noticed that? There's a bust of John F. Kennedy right next to the door. Look at Moranis's graduation picture on the wall. All right, who brought the pooch? So this is stop-motion animation that's been blended over, and then this is a real live puppet that's in the room. Stop-motion animation back into the hallway, and then you cut back to the real puppet in the hallway. I mean, this is a brilliant, not, not just special effects job, but a, a brilliant editing job to go from stop-motion to puppet to stop-motion to puppet. Here comes the, the dog, right? From a distance, the stop motion takes on more form. Look how they've shaded that in the dark.
And if you want a rejection of class and status in a film, you know, look no further than this scene, right? He's, this is that tavern on the green in Central Park. He's trying to get in, and the wealthy won't let him in. It's so funny. He turns around and just, huh? Maybe he got a milk bone or something. This is one of those films where me and my my friends, when I was nine when this came out, you know, they just turn around and just ignore him. But we knew every line of this film. We This and Spaceballs, you could repeat every single line. You could go back and forth between two or three people and repeat all of the lines from the film from start to finish. I'm not exaggerating. I would say Star Wars, Ghostbusters, and Spaceballs were the three that I could definitely do. Maybe The Princess Bride. So the door is torn open. He's looking for Dana, but Zool opens the door. Now, mind you that she's already acting like a dog, right? Are you the key master? No. And she slams the door. Then he knocks right again. Are you the key master? It's like she doesn't recognize that someone who's exactly the same just knocked on the door again. It's kind of like my dog when I get home and my dog is excited to see me. He doesn't know if I've been gone five minutes or five hours or five days. Because he doesn't have any short-term memory. It's kind of like Dana's already acting that way. Has anyone ever questioned why... Dr. Venkman goes out on a date with 50 cc's of Thorazine in his pocket. Just a good question. Do you want this body, sub-creature? I mean, what does it take to get two actors to do stuff like this? This is this has to be entirely uncomfortable for both actors. To be, he just slides right in between her legs, and that's you know, there's thirty people standing around. There's a director and a cinematographer, and there's guys holding lights, and there's guys holding mics, and there's gaffers and fucking carpenters and plumbers, and there's all kinds of people standing around. Is really, and and by the way, this is a comedy, and here. She says, you know, I want you in me. And he's like, okay, no, no, really, I can't. That's, there's, this is difficult stuff to shoot. You know, hey, Sigourney, what I want you to do is gnash your teeth together and then open your mouth real wide like you're, you're, you know, almost like you're a terror dog or something. And then we're going to roll your 
eyes back and I want to see the whites of your eyes. I mean, can you can you imagine having a a conversation with an actor about doing stuff like this? It has to be the most difficult thing, not only to do, but to receive and to execute as someone who's trying to bring someone else's vision to life. Oh, and then we're going to frizz your hair and lift you up in the air. And this is one of those things where uh, you know, I was expecting Orson Welles to pop out of the background with a hoop and run around her body and say, see, and then cut her in half. And then the next thing we see (laughs) is Vince Clortho. More public statues, right? He runs from the background to the foreground, in and out of people on the street. And here the carriage manager says, what an asshole. This cop looks like every NYPD cop I've ever seen in any movie ever. It's like he's direct out of central casting. And here we get into something, you know, the police are dropping Vince Clortho off at the Ghostbusters. Here we get into something that's kind of... You know, has the system failed? We have places for people who don't fit and don't belong in our society. And I don't mean that in a, in a classist way. Uh, and I, I don't mean that in any type of controversial way. I, I mean, people who uh, cannot function in our society like the majority of us do for a mental reason is what I'm getting at. Vince Clortho thinks that he's from another dimension. He's running around the city of New York talking to animals and talking about outer space stuff. And the police get him probably because he's been causing a nuisance. And they don't send him to Mount Bellevue, which is where they're going to send the Ghostbusters soon, you know, in the second film, they're going to, to say, basically, we're, we're going to give them to the Ghostbusters because clearly this is just outside of our league. So the Ghostbusters are, are, are the experts. They're the ones who are going to be advising the New York city police department on what to do with people who don't fit in mentally. And as it happens, that's not Vince's problem. Vince is possessed. Uh, The NYPD didn't know that.
this whole situation with Bankman, like I'm going to quote Bertacci again for a couple of paragraphs. It's got some good stuff to say about Bankman's character. Quote, for America loves rebels and it loves winners. Dr. Peter Bankman is both. We admire his guts and his willingness to go against the grain. But furthermore, we recognize that Pete Bankman's a guy who can get things done. He has book smarts and street smarts, the skills we wish we had, and an attitude we know we do. He is a natural leader, or at least a ring leader, with a heavy dose of charm and an eye for the bottom line. He is a doer, a dreamer, a schemer, and, all in his own terms, in short, he is an American. In his first scene in Ghostbusters depicts him cheerfully overstepping the ethical boundaries of both a scientist dealing with a human subject and a professor dealing with a student, and we love him for it. Venkman's attitude with his colleagues at the library indicates that he can be insubordinate even among his equals. But his most memorable comeback is the one he gives his client. Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Truly the James Dean of the test tube set. Strangely, it's Stance who first sums up its anti-authoritarian clash of the film only a few scenes later. The possibilities are limitless. Hey, Dean Yeager! There's the conflict in one line. Seven words. For Ghostbusters is a film about the clash of opposites. And here's a big one. From the unnamed Dean of 1925's The Freshman to the wonderfully named Dean Vernon Wormer of Animal House, there's a long cinematic tradition of college administrators as killjoys, and Jaeger is here to limit a few possibilities. Well, I was even thinking about uh, John Houseman, who shows up in Up the Creek to, to get on uh, Stephen First and, and Tim Matheson. So how much money did it take to shoot this shot? of Ecto-1 crossing, that's not the Brooklyn Bridge, is it? It's like the Queensboro Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge. Here comes big government to shut down the small business owner. And this is what Reitman called a, a going-into-business movie. I mean, the Ghostbusters, they find their property, they outfit their car, they hire their working staff, and, of course, they advertise. And there's something appealingly American about the scrappy spirit of the entrepreneur. And we can laugh at their commercial, but we're happy that they're doing well. And Bertacci's got some good stuff on their defense, right? He says, all the while, some of the trappings to their business invite comment. They set up shop in an abandoned firehouse, reconvert an ambulance for their company car, and festoon it with sirens and lights of dubious legality. They may be operating for profit, but they also crave legitimacy of public service. After all, they wound up in the firehouse in the first place to indulge Stance's fantasies of New York's bravest. Certainly, Stance's unabashed enthusiasm indicates a respect for this sort of authority, no doubt mirroring Aykroyd's own lifelong love of law enforcement. Now, we're about to go into the 
magic montage, and you're never going to see so much sky in this film. This is the second montage of the film. It'll be, there's only two. And you're going to see negative space overwhelm the frame, and all sense of balance is going to go out the window. You're not going to feel any balance for a while. Bertacci says, it's no wonder that conservative and libertarian publications and blogs embraced the film. The original Ghostbusters is as good a libertarian meditation on government as been made, pronounces Nick Gillespie, editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, Free Minds and Free Markets. Left-leaning writers can't help but spot the reading either. Children who looked at movie and TV screens... David Serrata warns in Back to Our Future and saw the success of government's handling over municipal security responsibilities to the Ghostbusters will naturally be less surprised or outraged when, as adults, they look at the same screens and see the government handing over the same responsibilities to the Ghostbusters terrorist-fighting colleagues at Blackwater. (laughs) He paints a gloomy picture of the film's back half, starting from when Peck turns off their ghost incarceration machine, the equivalent of releasing all convicted terrorists into Times Square. A nuclear explosion ensues, the ghosts declare World War III, and a metaphysical Ayatollah named Zool triumphantly waltzes into Manhattan and imposes a paranormal caliphate. This is in between contributions to the Huffington Post and the nation. That's pretty stellar. That's pretty stellar. So here's where Egon blows his top. Your mother. The magic montage. Beautiful shot of New York City. Of the World Trade Center. At the tip of Battery Park. It looks like the tip of Battery Park. Compare that with the previous montage, right? Upbeat, cheerful, focusing on the Ghostbusters and their triumphs. No ghosts in sight, really. Magic is dreary. Magic is maudlin. You saw landmarks in the first one. There's no real landmarks in the second one. There's a couple of messages. There was a fight back message in that one on the subway. This is mostly a a joke about this cab driver being an undead person. I read some stuff that was rather xenophobic on the web about what Reitman's trying to say is there's, you know, there's foreigners taking over the cabs in New York City. I thought that was not what Reitman was going for there, to be honest. So how are we going to win this battle? Over Gozer the Gazarian. Well, it's not going to surprise you 
Bertacci has an answer. He says it's the power of the individual that Ghostbusters celebrates, not the system of business or indeed any system over another. Take the protagonist. Peter Venkman behaves with a decidedly American sense of freedom and a laissez-faire attitude toward both economics and life. He is a creator, a trailblazer, a do-it-yourselfer. He is the antithesis of the middle-class wage slave that every millennial fears becoming. He is literally his own boss, a self-made freelance superhero, a guy with a big important job and an even bigger, more important gun. And he triumphs because of his skills, his ingenuity, and his efforts. Well, mostly Stances and Spangler's efforts, but the spirit remains. He would no doubt subscribe to the credo of American exceptionalism, provided that he is the American in question. Now, the prison scene benefits from a couple of little ironies. Most obviously our protagonists find themselves in a lockup as a direct result of the ghosts being freed from their lockup. But more subtly, this may be the first jail scene in history where blueprints are brought out. A conspiratorial tone is taken, and the topic isn't a prison break. So, American exceptionalism, for those of you who are just tuning in, is the idea that America and its history is exceptional in world history, that America stands out, that we're different than all the other nations before, namely because the way that we were founded by this special branch of enlightened founding fathers who did everything right the first time and created this almost perfect structure of government which we follow and has enabled the West in general, but America in particular, to adapt and overcome and morph and change over time to meet the demands of what it takes to exist as a nation in the modern world. There's a lot to say for that, but the minute that you finish that sentence of America is exceptional, you've now pissed off half of the listening population who are very quick to jump in and say there's nothing special about America, that, uh, in fact, America is not a very good place, or even if it is a good place, there are other places that may be better. I can't name any right now, Canada. But in general, you can't uh, find some place that perhaps could even rival the United States, most of Europe, when they probably have blown out walls that overlook decaying cities. Notice that Dana waited in the same chair that Zool found her in. The pink remains of her apartment are cast to one side, and the rest of the place carries a kind of a blue tone. The door, see a door, swings open, and the difference in height is meant to enhance the comedy. 
the city hall fight, well, there, there's a lot going on here. Like you see the prestige of the room in the background. You had a, uh, a city executive who was black come in the door to announce the Ghostbusters so that we know that this is a, a middle to left government pro-affirmative action place. The Ghostbusters look like shit. They're the blue collar. The white collar is is everyone who represents civilian government, Peck, the mayor, these working stiffs. The cops have blue collars except for the chief there. His eminence will come in wearing a white collar. So there's a lot of class at play going on. Venkman here is flippant. He's lackadaisical. He comes across as a con man. He does not exemplify the values that we hold dear, or at least we pay lip service to. But he also saves the world. Peck separates himself from the group. More often than not, he's standing next to the map, right? The Ghostbusters all cluster together. They even cluster with the cops on their side. Peck feels safer with other suits. And I assume that the ripple effect that's on the map is from the fire station out. So that's what Peck did, not what the Ghostbusters doing. And here, of course, is the famous line, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. The final authority of the mayor, of course, is the eagle and the shield above his desk on the wall. Representing what? An exceptional America. Now, this scene here where Venkman says, Lenny, you would have saved the lives of millions of registered voters. That really called back a specific scene to me from the taking of Pella 123. And forgive me, I do not remember who directed it, but Walter Matthau was in it, and they had a very similar scene in City Hall the plot of the movie is that uh, a group of robbers take hostage an entire train off the New York subway that has about, I don't know, 15, 16 people in it. And they want a million dollars. Robert Shaw is the Quint from Jaws. He's the uh, lead hostage taker. And Walter Matthau has to get him out. That's the plot. So there's this scenes in City Hall where they, they have to decide whether or not they're going to pay this money. And the mayor's wife gets involved, and she says, well, I know what you're buying for a million dollars. And the mayor asks what, and she says, 16 sure votes in your next election. And that, to the mayor, was enough. And I, when I saw that scene in Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, which I think I didn't see it until 91 or 92 on the Encore Network, 
that reminded me exactly of this scene in Ghostbusters, and I, I can't help but relate the two. See so here we've got these Orthodox Jews praying in front of the Temple of Zul. You've also got this police escort from the municipal forces. You've got the National Guard from the federal forces. You've got people crowding onto the street, Central Park West. You've got, I mean, this is an enormously complicated crowd shot that Reitman's pulled off here. And this is supposed to meld different aspects of American life, the cops, the responders, the people, elements of the government. And this is where the Ghostbusters get their support from. And that's where Free Enterprise gets its support from. Right? Even the Jews are going crazy. They love the Ghostbusters. And why not? And they do have a smooth arrival. They have public acclamation. Things are looking up. Stance gets a lot of shots here. When the earthquake hits Central Park West... Reitman peppers his compositions with harsh diagonals going every which way. The image, kind of like the situation, it's unbalanced and it's hazy. Our perspective shifts and we rejoin the crowd. The alternative, of course, is being under the sidewalk with the Ghostbusters, so we know that we're not going there. The camera does not follow them into the pit. It just waits for them on the sidewalk. And when they reemerge, the crowd arranges itself into a unified mass. We cheer with them and we watch the heroes go away. This, this all looks way too easy. Reitman is making this look like he could have done this any day of the week. The stairs, as usual... The exciting slammed up against the mundane. They have to get up there somewhere. Every time I look at this shot, I think about those 9-11 responders who had to go up the towers. And Bertacci says the film treats the opening of the Temple of Zul with ample respect. Formal, symmetrical framing for the doors, reflecting the composition used before to indicate dread and conflict. Dark, forbidding sky surrounds the characters. 
all of the technical conceits and seed plantings of the preceding scenes are finally converging. Lightning passes between the keymaster, gatekeeper, and the temple doors. It's easy to spot the triangles similar to the proton streams enclosing Slimer on the Ghostbusters' first call. From that $5,000 job to this. Note, incidentally, Venkman's reluctance to fall into single file with his allies in Dana's apartment. Perhaps he's aware of the trouble a composition can cause. The terror dogs take new places at their pedestals inside the temple. The arrangement directly and intentionally reflects the two lion statues flanking the New York Public Library steps. The film has been encoding the visual language for this showdown from the very first shot. Below, the Ghostbusters advance to their position at the bottom of the stairs, lined up like chessmen. Gozer emerges, or takes its or her place. A strict, symmetrical battle formation has been drawn up atop of the Ivo Shandor building. And the war is on. I'm tempted to say no human being would frame a shot like this. Even something like this, like this is obviously a set. Obviously, it's... I don't know if that's a matte painting or back projection. Probably an element of both. There's the triangle opening the doors. You can tell that Reitman has a, a, a love and an understanding of New York City. The double doors. Kind of like the first time you saw Dana in the elevator, those double doors opening. She walks out. Live action to stop motion animation. The Temple of Zul with the pyramid and the blinding light, it's almost like it's meant to represent the Masonic symbol on the back of a $1 bill. It's supposed to look otherworldly. It's supposed to look majestic. And it's supposed to be a symbol that you're to recognize and derive mysterious meaning from. Here's one of the lines that you just memorized when you were a kid and you let roll at parties or to impress people. Goes to the Gazarian, good evening. As the duly representative of the city, county, and state of New York, I order you to cease any and all future paranormal activities and return forthwith 
your place of origin or the nearest convenient parallel dimension. Thank you. I got a couple of words off there. And at this point, you you remember Peck's line about we we hear wild stories in the media, and this is certainly a wild story. How do you explain this to all the people on the street? And here you're you're entering the phase of the film where it becomes so fantastic and so unbelievable. How did you get to the point where you believe that a Slavonian supermodel can fly out of a building in high heels and shoot lightning out of her arms. And it's because of those steps that I told you about and the step-by-step, the stacking of the dominoes where we're just incrementally we're going to up this game. Now, Gozer may be a girl, but she definitely represents the rigidness of a man, especially when she lands, even on her high heels. She's not going anywhere. Easy payday for her. That was two days of filming, maybe. Now, this fight doesn't really go well at all. You you watch this over and over again. You wonder if there's too many wide shots, but I think it's just enough. This is a huge set piece. It's almost like a joke set piece. It's supposed to be like the ending of Frankenstein. And then, of course, Stay Puffed, who's been hinted through all through the film. There's even an advertisement on a wall in Trebekah if you were paying attention. But now he's here for real. So the camera angles and the editing add a little bit of comedy here. And they reverse the traditional dynamic of the representation of power. The visual symbolism of the Ghostbusters being nearly consumed by the flames is kind of self-explanatory, right? But there's, there's a lot of different stuff going on here than what happened at Camp Wakanda.
not until Brad Bird's The Incredibles, which is like 20 years later, would a mass appeal comedy adventure so relentlessly celebrate the ideas of Ayn Rand. And maybe this was louder in 2004 than it was in 1984. And I remember after, uh, after Enron, a lot of people were buying Ayn Rand. They were buying Atlas Shrugged. Maybe because The Incredibles was more explicit in its Randian themes. But it was a film that depicted an egalitarian war on the exceptional. I, I got to go back to quoting Bertacci here. Like Ghostbusters political charging like it's proton charging all looks pretty cut and dry on the surface. A 2007 dispatch from the Atlantic, amusingly enough, sums it all right in the title. Ghostbusters as right-wing agitprop. Regrettably, no comment is made on the politics of the next dimension. But the Randian reading ignores the basic streak of populism running through the movie. It's the institution that drags the heroes down, not the lesser achievers. Indeed, the common people cheer for the Ghostbusters and praise them in the mass media. And the worst the Ghostbusters do to the people is overcharge them with a smile. So here's the bright idea. And Peck is going to get it. And, you know, he treats the Ghostbusters clients with the most disdain. He calls them grotesquely stupid and he accuses them of hallucinating. And everyone was perfectly happy to play along with the capitalist system, including supporting the de facto monopoly of the most successful ghostbusting company in the nation. And Peck's intervention doesn't just curtail the efforts of the most productive citizens. It hurts the people who want to give those citizens money and maybe get out, get the ghosts out of their house. In The Fountainhead, Howard Rourke speaks passionately of how innovators and creators are mocked and persecuted. In Atlas Shrugged, Hank Reardon refuses to apologize for his success, no matter how desperately the public rails against him. In Ghostbusters, by contrast, we enjoyed an upbeat montage depicting their public acclaim. No Randian persecution complex here, until in stepped the institution. Eventually, the city government steps in to save the Ghostbusters from the federal government. Apparently, even among institutions, the little guy needs to fight the big guy. For in the end... The city makes the right choice and essentially calls the Ghostbusters. New York's finest team up with the National Guard to facilitate crowd control and running of red lights because there's quite a crowd on hand and the mayor knows it. Indeed, as Venkman's pitch implies, his decision to help the Ghostbusters may well be based in political self-interest to get on the board with a popular appeal. 
Of course, the profile two shot is going to be invoked throughout this, but mainly at the end with Dana. It's going to look somewhat unresolved until they're down on the street. I can't stay away from Bertacci. He's just too good. For such an enthusiastically pro-business movie, Ghostbusters picks an interesting topic to lampoon in its most memorable set piece. The Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man clearly represents consumerism gone wild, a corporate icon running rampant, and it's not the kind of reading that you have to stretch for. The screenplay describes him as the cute quiz-essential American brand symbol, looming as large as Godzilla. It's hilarious that when Stance flings his mind back to warm childhood memories, his first thought is the friendly character on the marshmallow package. No doubt that's exactly the association the marketers were hoping for, although perhaps not in this context. The semi-conscious yoking of emotion to brand image has succeeded all too well, and now America's love for its corporations has literally created a monster. If the Ghostbusters represent capitalism doing right by society, Mr. Staypuff represents capitalism at its most destructive, the company that gets too big and starts destroying everything. Admittedly, not the most sophisticated observation, but consider this. Stance bears a cute cartoon logo on his uniform shoulder, trivializing the serious as surely as the abomination before him renders serious the trivial. He's already bought into the cycle. He's gone on television to sell people security and peace of mind. He even has the most lines in the commercial. Must all capitalism inevitably devolve into tyranny? If so, then Stance already bought Mr. Stay Puff to life long before anyone asked him to choose the form of the destructor. On the other hand, consider this. Mr. Stay Puff traps Gozer inside something physical and thus beatable. He may be constricting influence of incalculable destructive potential, but without him, our heroes cannot win. That's the thing about the system. Big business may threaten to stomp on us, but we need it to do our equally big jobs or we can't function. Even the government has to call on corporations from time to time. Halliburton, Lockheed Martin, Stay Puft Marshmallows. Maybe war makes strange bedfellows. Maybe Ghostbusters is just hedging its bets on free enterprise. Or maybe political power is simply where you find it. One thing is clear. America saves the world, and it does so on American terms. The tradition here grows out of World War II movies, if not attitudes of the exceptional nation sweeping in and winning the war for everyone else, the ever-patriotic Superman shilled for war bonds while Captain America's debut cover showed him socking Hitler in the jaw. The trope of the worldwide problem solvable only by plucky Americans reached its fullest height in the late 90s, with disaster films like Independence Day, Deep Impact, and Armageddon. Those films had the rebellious cowboy heroes, to be certain, but even they didn't do their world-saving in the context of an enterprise for profit. Ghostbusters isn't a difficult movie to read. It's just that it being a popular commercial release, no one bothers. Unlocking its meanings can be a strange task, though ultimately a gratifying one. Like any film worth the celluloid it's printed on, it gets better and richer with each viewing. That smart and sophisticated visual strategies and techniques were employed on a crowd-pleasing special effects romp should not come as a surprise. If nothing else, Ghostbusters is a film in which two points of duality can and do coexist. 
No, the film may not be packed with obfuscating metaphoric imagery or connect the dots symbolism to trace, but the fact that our heroes are unceremoniously disposed by academia should put paid to the notion of such facile film schoolish decoding. The joy of studying film isn't in limiting your understanding to the analytical experience. The fun is in finding new things to appreciate. The educated viewer gets the most out of the good movies and sometimes even out of the bad ones. Like a wine connoisseur, you begin to know what you're looking at and looking for. We've done a good amount of unpacking with the film at this point. The brie is littering the floor. Analyzing a movie for the first time is like taking apart an old Cadillac. You have to understand how all the pieces go. To sum it up, I'd like to drop everything I just sped it out, almost verbatim, from Adam Bertacci's Overthinking Ghostbusters and add a few things of my own. First, I have not scratched the surface of what Bertacci has put onto this site. You should all go to runlayerrun.com and to read and examine all of his other points on this very expansive film. To reiterate what I had said in previous podcasts, this is not exhaustive, and there remains a mountain of material not only with Bertacci, but others. I focused on a shot-by-shot analysis that emphasized politics. I know I wandered off point, and I'm sorry, but I, I could make another podcast on this same film and emphasize New York as a character, or the hero's journey, or gender, or horror as a genre, or technical aspects like cinematography and editing. There's simply too much for a one-shot deal. So my thanks once again to Adam Bertacci and his Overthinking Ghostbusters project, that you can find on his website at runlayerun.com. 90% of what I read was direct from him, and 90% of that was probably verbatim. Rather than try to paraphrase it and miss all of that eloquence in an attempt to be witty, I just asked him permission to use it with citation. In the end, I'm just a voice to his observations, and I'd like to thank him once again. And to everyone else, I'd like to say... Did you know that Reggie Vell Johnson was in this movie? Thanks for hanging out with me for the last couple hours while we watched Ghostbusters 1984. Whether you watched it in your car or with the commentary in your home. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcast, my books, and my blog at www.thatdillandavis.com where you can leave a comment under the Super 70 Podcast tab. Super 70 Podcast is available on SoundCloud and iTunes. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail. You can reach them both at soundcloud.com. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdillandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at ThatDylanDavis and find my books on Amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time in Justiceville. <laughs>